Elizabeth Corley, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School Leadership Podcast Series today. You very much thought, didn't you, that the current global crisis was very near meltdown. We were 48 hours away, you say, from people not being able to draw cash from the banks. How did that come about? As with all big crises, it was more than one thing. It had its roots in the stimulus after 9-11, in the fact that there was very easy free money, the fact that people started to use their home as an ATM. They would see the increase in their house prices and then spend it, as opposed to realise that it was actually not stable. Plus the fact that you had tremendous innovation in the investment banking industry, you had the repeal of Glass-Steagall, you had globalisation, you had many, many, many factors coming together. A crisis of this magnitude takes multiple causes. Were you surprised about the magnitude and the global reach of it? Could anybody have, have predicted that 48 hours away from not being able to draw cash from our banks? Well, 48 hours is my um, sort of practitioner assessment of it. I think the scale and reach shocked most people, including the regulators, including the, the Fed. Uh, yes, indeed. I think the issue was everybody knew that this could reach a long way, but it was the collapse of Lehman Brothers that was a trigger that sent huge seismic shocks through the financial system itself, and that nobody knew how to have the circuit breakers to stop those shocks continuing across the whole of the system. In terms of Lehman Brothers, do you think that they managed their affairs well. They, they, you talked about them being philanthropic on one hand, but actually being out of touch on the other. I think there were many lessons from the collapse of Lehman Brothers, an isolated, arrogant uh, leadership team that weren't in touch with the reality of what was going on, financial innovation that was allowed out of control, the risk manager not empowered to intervene, and some very, very wise and excellent people within Lehman Brothers who were not listened to, who were warning about the crisis as it was happening. Also, you went to the social roots of the causes, didn't you, and, and looked at Bill Clinton and his desire for everybody to own a home and how that didn't work. Well, I think the, the concept was a great one, which is enabling social mobility, enabling people to get on the housing ladder. There's nothing wrong with that as a policy. If you then have very cheap money and you then have an, a fundamental belief that house prices only ever go up and never go down more than 5%, which is what the fundamental belief was, you have a situation which can be abused. You have a social policy of good intention abused um, beyond belief. That word arrogance, it wasn't just in relation to Lehman Brothers, you mentioned it, but, but in relation to how the markets generally worked. Why do you choose that word? I think people believe they were writing their own rules, that the rules of the past no longer applied, that we were into a new world and they were in charge of creating and shaping that new world. And the arrogance was to forget lessons of history and to believe themselves without challenge too much. And... You also mentioned those global forces. At the same time as, as we had those economic forces coming together, there was the decline of the Western economies and the rise of the so-called tiger economies, India, China, the brick economies. Absolutely. This was a structural shift that was happening in the world economies anyway. The West was living on, on basically on cheap money and asset inflation, while other less developed countries were generating real economic growth. That was happening anyway. Then you have the crisis coming on top of that, and therefore the effects create huge uncertainty in where we go to next and how we navigate through the crisis. And you said we should expect second and third wave crises. Why have you come to that conclusion? Because the nature of averting the first 
crisis having a fundamental effect on the world economy was quantitative easing, fiscal stimulus, a lot more cheap money. It's a bit like being on a drug and knowing at some point you've got to come off the drug. When do you go through the cold turkey and will you survive it? We have to have a a process of getting out of that easy money supply. If we do it too fast, we, we actually suppress growth. If we do it too slow, we have hyperinflation. Also, some of countries that bailed out the, public se- the private sector couldn't afford it. So now you look in the Eurozone, you see some much weaker economies where the sovereign debt issue is now the issue at hand. You agreed with the UK policy of quantitative easing. Indeed, some people have credited that with saving the European banks. But you say that the UK economy is in a very weak position. It is indeed. I mean, it wasn't in the strongest position before we went into the crisis. The scale of quantitative easing necessary to prevent a real disaster, and and nobody would criticise that, I think, the scale was huge, and we weren't an economy strong enough to to pay for that. And now we have this massive deficit. We don't have enough growth. We don't have an economic growth. Therefore, we're facing a situation where tax has to go up, where public services probably have to come down, and ultimately those things will reduce the recovery rate for the UK quite substantially. You set out, Elizabeth, the values that you would like to see people involved adopt in the financial sector. So if the negative word was arrogance, then the positive word is humility, that people shouldn't gamble with other people's money. They should always remember that it is other people's money. Absolutely right. And I got this advice in 1993 from the chairman of a company I once worked for. And he said the biggest lesson, Elizabeth, is humility and remembering that we're looking after other people's money. That's a deep value. And I think it's still there. And I think many parts of the industry still believe that. The problem is they weren't big enough or loud enough to prevent a a corrosion of those values over the last 20 years. You shoot down some of the, what you might say, foundations of business today in terms of looking at brand. You said, no, we shouldn't look at brand. We should look at reputation. That's more important. And also, scale is the enemy of efficiency. How have you come to that conclusion? I think, um, first of all, when I talk about reputation versus brand, I think brand accumulates reputation. And I think there is a real danger that, that branding is used as a marketing tool as opposed to a fundamental element of the culture of the organization. That's particularly true for a services industry like financial services. Reputation management is key, absolutely key. And if you have glitzy brand, but it's based on a, on a shallow foundation and poor behavior, your consumer's smart enough to find that out. Scale, I think, is an enemy of efficiency and rapidity and flexibility. If we're going through a world which is changing, as a a business leader, you want to be able to respond to that change fast, well, and efficiently. If you've got a very large organization to change, and it's actually built like an oil tanker as opposed to a fleet of ships, it's very, very difficult. If you've got a fleet of ships, how do you make sure they all turn in the right direction and the message gets across? So the bigger you are, the more complex it is to run an organization and really get efficiency. So you really need a strong and diversified management team to help you do that. You talked about your own career and where you began, sort of not going to university on the shop floor, and actually how at times you've had arrogance, thinking you understand people at the bottom, but then clearly you're not there anymore. Can you just set out your career for us? Because it has been unusual. 
Yes, it has been unusual. I, basically, I, I was due to go to university and didn't, ended up working in a shoe shop and then uh, eventually working in an office because it paid slightly better and doing the filing and making the coffee and, and was given opportunities from there. And it is very true that because I came from that route, I'm always at risk of assuming that I understand it. But, of course, that's an arrogance that is not appropriate. I can't understand now what it's like. I have a memory of it, and that memory reminds me not to take things for granted. And also, most importantly, and something I didn't say in the lecture, which is to value the contributions of everybody at all levels and in all functions, because that's when you deliver real value. And does it take a time as a leader, because this is the leadership series, to find yourself, if you like, to be comfortable in your own shoes? I think it does. It takes time, experience, wisdom, and great feedback. People who will give you honest feedback about what you're good at and what you're not good at. And it's letting that challenge into our own personalities that is the challenge. I think the root of of being a good leader is to be confident enough to know that you're not perfect, confident enough to take good advice and act on it, and constantly listen for it. And and I think that, that some experience helps. So when you're starting out, you want to prove yourself. The more experience you have, the more proof you've got behind you, the more open you can be. But being able to take that feedback is essential. You talked about Lehman Brothers' philanthropic tendencies, and they patted themselves on the back because they thought they were a philanthropic uh, company. And then you laid out almost a new social order where, in fact, there will have to be a social contract within the business contract. Can you explain that philosophy? Yeah, I think there is, we're at a parting of the ways. I think companies will respond to this in different ways. Some will just go back to what they were doing before. Others will decide that they need to have a social contract with community, social responsibility, good governance as part of that contract, and that that's going to be as important as the shareholder return, employee satisfaction, and client satisfaction. I think some companies will make that explicit, Some companies may do it implicitly, and some will decide that's just a a fad and we don't have to worry about that. Uh, I think our company hugely believes that because we think that's linked to sustainable, long-term, profitable development. And there will be diverse teams within those companies. It's not just about gender in the boardroom, women in there, younger people. Actually, companies now have diverse global workforces embracing many nationalities. It's, it's exactly that. It, it's cultural diversity. It is functional diversity. You know, being a salesperson is very different from being an accountant. You need functional diversity, gender diversity, age diversity. And it really helps if you combine that into a team that can then still respect each other, trust each other and work together. In terms of the accountancy rules, if people overpromise on the earning levels, then they're not going to gain the trust of investors in the future. I think that's absolutely right. People are looking for sustainable, good quality earnings. They're not looking for short-term bad profits. And I think the analyst community has a responsibility in that, and so does the accounting community, to make sure that the behaviours support the ability for investors to make those judgments about what's good profit, sustainable, and what's cheap profit. If we now just move on to the leisure side uh, of your life, Elizabeth Corley, CEO, if we look you up on the web, the first thing we get is crime writer. And those various novels you've written, including I think the latest one is Requiem, can you tell us a little bit how that fits into your world? Well, it is something I'm passionate about. I love crime writing. Um, I grew up in a a family where books were always revered. My father wrote a couple of books. So when I had the idea to write a book, it it was almost second nature to say, right, now let's write it, rather than feel it was an impediment. I had the idea for the first book, which happened to be Requiem Mass, and I just started writing it. 
And, and do you think that adds to your career in terms of numbers by day, writing by night? You said that you get out all your black feelings <laughs> uh, by your pen and, and not in the, in the boardroom. But, but if people are here wanting to shape their careers, actually it's a real pull if you can feel a different side of you. I, I think having a way in which you can be a balanced person, whether it's your family, whether it's sport, whether it's crime writing or whatever, is very important. I think you're a better leader if you have a balanced personality. And I think the danger of obsessive leadership is that you become blinkered to how real people behave. So I would always encourage people... People talk about work-life balance. That's more tricky. I mean, I work extremely hard, and I probably don't manage my work-life balance terribly well. But having a balance of interests and having an escape valve where you need to be somebody different and relax is very, very important. And would you like, just finally, to, to name some of those qualities that you think the future leaders of companies will need? I think they have to have integrity. I think they have to respect uh, society, their employees and their clients in particular and customers. I think they've got to have energy, passion and vision. And I think they've got to have an emotional attachment to what they want to do rather than go through the process. Elizabeth Corley, CEO of Allianz Global Investors Europe. Thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. I've enjoyed it very much. It's been my pleasure. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye.